This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Anna John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And today I am joined by, via Zoom by my dear friend and co-host, Jeff Klein. Jeff, how are you today? I'm doing well, Ann. Uh, oh, good. How are you? Happy, happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday. It's a beautiful day here in Philadelphia with low humidity, <laughs> a plus. And with that, let me say, Jeff, that we have a wonderful guest here today, a guest who has written a new book called Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. And since our guest is in studio, so to speak, virtually, let me uh, waste no time and invite Vikram Mansharamani. Vikram, welcome. Hi, and how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure having you, uh, Vikram. And I'm going to ask you uh, uh, what we might call a softball question just to start. And I'm actually <laughs> borrowing from uh, Jeff Klein. Every um, We meet with our staff every Tuesday and Thursday. And on Tuesday, we tend to do more organizational updates. And I facilitate that update. And on Thursday, we do more of a how are you doing kind of opening in the staff meeting. And it, it takes a little time because there, when we're in full force, there are 26 of us. So we get 26 responses to how are you doing? But yesterday, Jeff asked uh, everyone to think about how they were doing uh, and to answer that with just in a word or a phrase. So is there one word that comes to mind when I ask you, Vikram, how, how are you doing? Improving. Hey, I love it. <laughs> That's my one word answer. Improving. Uh, now, okay. somewhat cryptic because you don't know the base at which I'm starting. Uh, you have no idea where the sort of standard is nor where I'm going, but it's going in the right direction. Okay. Well, can you say a little bit about uh, where you were and where you are and where you hope to be? Yeah. So, well, physically right now I am in Lexington, Mass. Um, and I start with that uh, because... Uh, obviously, I'm not traveling as much as I used to be. Um, you know, I, I've done a fair amount of consulting and advisory work, and having all of that go away uh, during this mm -hmm. pandemic was was quite disruptive. So, um, but I'm starting to see some green shoots that people are saying, "Hey, you know what? Let's adapt. Uh, let's get on Zoom. Let's do something on Cisco WebEx. Let's do well, Microsoft Teams." I'm trying to be, you know, non-supportive of any particular technology here, since we don't want. <laughs> endorsing. I know those conflicts of interest arise. So um, in any case, uh, so yeah, things are improving. That's where I was. And where I was before was very busy and then a little bit of a shock uh, and a slowdown, not unhealthy, uh, but then an improvement from here. So. Very good. And now I think it'd be important for me to say that you're in Lexington outside of Boston because you're a lecturer at Harvard. Can you That's say a little bit more about um, your current career? Sure, my current my current career. Wow, that's a uh, <laughs> the current career is a uh, is a is a bigger question. But my current position at Harvard is I am a lecturer uh, in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 
um, and I teach a class called Humanity and Its Challenges. Uh, that's because I couldn't figure out a, a bigger topic. I figured let's start there. <laughs> Um, and uh, it's actually a systems thinking approach uh, to, to addressing really complex uh, problems. Uh, so we, we touch on things in the class I've been teaching for about four years now, since the 2016-17 academic year. Uh, you know, we, we investigate cases like the risk of a global pandemic, uh, global food vulnerability, um, you know, technology and jobs, uh, inequality and capitalism, uh, refugees and migration, etc., etc., etc. Well, I I really appreciate that. I'm going to bring Jeff in the conversation in just a moment. But in reading through your book, I have to tell you that I really resonated with one of your comments in your preface in which you mentioned that you've only taught courses you've designed. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you you made me you made me feel better about myself. I began to puff up a little bit because uh, I don't know if Jeff knows this, but I have never taught a course I've taken. <laughs> which is a little embarrassing and I hope no one's listening, especially not my dear colleagues and faculty at the Wharton School and University of Pennsylvania who would be horrified. <laughs> but I have a lot of experience teaching courses I've never taken and so I really uh, really appreciated appreciated that. And you made another comment that gave me heart as well is being a bit of a generalist, a jack of all trades so to speak enables you to ask uh, naive questions. And that also put me right at home because I'm really good at doing that on this radio show. <laughs> yep, that's so great. So prepare yourself, Vikram. We'll, I will be asking some uh, naive and, and basic questions. So maybe one more and then right over to Jeff. What inspired you to write your book, Think for Yourself? So it's a fascinating story. I don't want to go deep down this rabbit hole, but it started with um, my my first book, which was about financial bubbles, where I used multiple lenses to help practitioners in the world of finance navigate through the uncertainty of a financial bubble. And that was really, in some ways, you can think of it as liberal arts meets finance. A little bit of psychology, a little bit of politics, a little bit of economics, some numbers, looking at herd behavior, etc. And shockingly, I gave a talk to a large group of finance professionals. Uh, This probably was 2012. And one of the folks in the audience comes up and says, you know what, this framework's really interesting. I'd like to keep in touch. And I said, great. A couple of years later, having completely forgot about him, he reaches back out and he said, you know, Vikram, that framework you gave me, I used it when I had a diagnosis of prostate cancer. And it was helpful. Like I, I use the logic of multiple lenses to navigate through this uncertainty mm-hmm. and I triangulated and I did, I connected dots rather than sought to generate more dots. And what I found was that was really powerful. It so happens to be I, at the same time had or fairly recently before that comment from that individual, I had, uh, I had written a, uh, a piece for the Harvard Business Review called All Hail the Generalist. Um, and so those two things came together and I was also then working on as a fellow, uh, I had a fellowship over at the Kennedy school at Harvard and I was sort of taking some time to think about what I wanted to do sort of big idea next. And these things came together and the product of that is this book, uh, think for yourself. So it's intended to help people navigate uncertainty in this time when you have lots of information coming at you from different directions. Oh, wonderful. Well, Jeff, let me bring you into the conversation. 
All right. Thanks, Sam. And Vikram, great to have you on the show. Um, uh, generalist. Um, tell us, what is a generalist? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny when, when Ann said uh, jack of all trades, uh, most people would follow it with dot, 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 master of none. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's not necessarily a negative thing. Right. So when I say a generalist, what I'm saying is someone who has broad knowledge and rough awareness of different domains. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that really means that, you know, a little bit of, about a lot. Um, and that means you're willing to ask questions. You also, I think, as a generalist, are less likely to be overconfident um, in the sense that, you know, there are people who know more about almost everything than you do. Right. I mean, that's almost definitional. That person's expert. I'm a generalist. I know a little bit. They know a lot. Let me ask questions. They may be naive, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a wonderful calibration mechanism, too, to even self-identify as a generalist, because it helps you understand that there are, of course, people who know a lot more about a lot of things than I do or than a generalist does. So that's one. Um, the other thing I would say is a generalist probably focuses a lot on the context rather than um, any specific dot. So there's a, there's a, there's a focus on dot connecting rather than dot generating. Um, when you think in, in the world today or in the world recently, who, who are some of these exemplar generalists, uh, in your mind, just to maybe start to put some faces on, on generalists for our listeners? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think almost everyone can be partial generalist in one role, <laughs> and then partial specialist in another. Um, and so, you know, rather than highlight one particular person, because then people say, oh, that's what I need to be to be a generalist. Mm -hmm. I almost don't like going down. I mean, I have some ideas, but I'd, rather, than, rather than highlighting specific generalists, um, maybe what I'd show is sort of the, the process or approach that a generalist would take to bring in different perspectives. So, you know, uh, in fact, recently I was watching the movie Lincoln, with my kids. Um, and mm -hmm. so it, you know, this is a great movie. I love Doris Kearns Goodwin book, uh, Team of Rivals. I mention right. it in my book. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, during that sort of movie, you sort of see how he seeks out disagreement. I mean, mm -hmm. you sort of bring in people with different views than you are, have and people who are more expert and you tap into them. Um, and so I think, you know, being a generalist means tapping into lots of different perspectives um, and, and sort of not apologizing for being broad, right? So, right. Journal so journalists generally, I think, fall in this category mm -hmm. uh, of, of sort of broad generalists all yep. beats, they tend to have particular beats that they focus on. Um, yep. so, so in some cases, what it is, is multiple sort of experiences, multiple specializing experiences over time could turn you into a generalist. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. And so that's, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting as you're um, describing that, right? Because I'm, uh, I'm drawing, you know, or, or seeing kind of a picture in my mind of a generalist who has, this sort of mountaintop kind of view, you know, they're lo looking far and wide, being able to see in many directions. Um, but how have you seen this generalist approach work? Is it sort of the view from the mountaintop? Where, how, how do they um, yeah. Yeah. determine a level of focus? I guess. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I love the word focus and, and thank you for bringing it up because it's something I address a fair amount in a lot of my work. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, 
the reason is just as Anne talked about Jack of all, you know, uh, Jack of all trades, master of none. Um, so too. Well, you talked about master of none. She only talked about Jack of all trades. Well, just Jeff, as you described focus, mm-hmm. the alternative also equally descriptive of the concept is ignoring or filtering, right? So when you focus, you are ignoring. When you focus, you are filtering. When you focus uh, narrowly, you are broadly ignoring, Mm -hmm. right? So if we can use the analogy of a spotlight for a moment, what we find is focus is in fact the spotlight and what you ignore is the shadows. And oftentimes insights, insights may lie in those shadows. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think one way to describe a generalist in this language of focus, if you will, is someone who has a wide angle lens, uh, Mm. someone who steps back and tries to not focus so narrowly, uh, but instead help identify what the issue is and then can drill down when they need particular uh, insight by tapping into the appropriate expertise uh, if they know that's where a problem is. So actually, you know, one example I could give you here, uh, which might prove interesting, is I personally had a slight medical scare. This was probably 10 years ago. Um, and I go to, a, to my general practitioner um, who, you know, did a bunch of tests, nothing came up, sort of, I'm not sure. And eventually he says, you know, go home. Uh, we've done all the tests that can't figure it's probably a virus, you know, just drink fluids. And actually, by the way, I don't think I've ever left a doctor's office when I haven't been told to drink fluids. That's <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, anyway, so a couple of weeks later, still having the same issues, I go back. And I was like, look, doc, I don't understand. Something is wrong. And he said, all right, well, I can send you to a specialist. And the alarm bells go off. I had just written this book on financial bubbles saying sometimes the specialist misses the big white elephant in the room because, yeah. you know, the specialist knows what they're looking for. And so I end up uh, walking out on him and saying, you know what, I'm done. I don't need your help. Thank you. And I went into this, uh, you know, as type A personalities do, I went into this research mode to figure this out myself. Um, and, and I figured out eventually there was this field of medicine known as functional medicine, which took a totally different approach. And they were generalists. They were dot connectors. They were systems thinkers. Uh, and they looked at the body as a whole and we figured out a couple things. And it turns out it was nothing severe or really problematic. And we fixed a couple things in my life and lo and behold, it's all fine and better. Um, and, you know, whereas you, I went from sort of the risk of a potential biopsy to, oh, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a different approach. Um, and, and, you know, this is a cliche, but I'll use it anyway. Oftentimes a specialist is like a man with a hammer. Um, and yeah. They see nails. Um, I'd rather that a person run around with multiple tools in their pockets, right? So it's not just a hammer. I want you to have a screwdriver. I want you to have a wrench because when you see that little narrow shaft that has a flat top that is usually round, rather than hitting it with a hammer, I want you to actually pay attention and say, is there a slit in the top? Because then maybe I need to use a screwdriver or maybe it's not circular. Maybe it's a hexagon on top. Maybe I should use a wrench. Uh, Maybe there's threading, maybe there's not. Maybe it's pointy, maybe it's flat. You think differently when you have different tools because you're not sure which one to use. And so I think you understand the problem you face better when you have multiple tools to deploy. 
Here, let me just jump in real quick and remind our listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall. I'm here today with Jeff Klein, and together we have the pleasure of speaking with Harvard lecturer Vikram Mansharmani, whose new book is called Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. How about... Uh, Vikram, I'm reminded of a colleague at Penn, Jeff and I, and Mike have had the pleasure of in interviewing him, Phil Tetlock, sure. who talks about uh, the fox and the hedgehog and the, the importance of, if we're going to try to look into the future and see around quarters, look what we have in the back of your, <laughs> we have a fox. <laughs> Intentional. <laughs> Intentional. You're one of the few people who have noticed it and understand why. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm a good student. <laughs> so I, I, is it, would it be fair to say that uh, Phil Tetlock's work has been of interest and maybe inspirational to you? Absolutely. I think his work is amazing. Uh, I really found huge value um, in, in his research, really from his first book, Expert Political Judgment, straight through Super Forecasters. I think his work is amazing. I'm a big fan. Um, you know, I think at one point we traded some emails about ideas, but I haven't really gotten to know him that well, uh, but mm -hmm. admire uh, his work from afar. Uh, I think he's spot on in how he thinks about it. Yeah, so maybe just a follow-up question to you. And again, one of those naive uh, questions. How did we get into this predicament? predicament of, of just one. looking to <laughs> special well yes so many <laughs> well how about the predicament focus of, of relying, focus. <laughs> relying so heavily on specialists yeah you know it, it's, it's interesting uh i do discuss this a little bit in, in in my book but i think it's really something that we all can understand and relate to more recently but it's been a longer term trend which is we're drowning in information yeah. Right, we've got way too much data. We have a hard time making sense of it, and so you know what we've done is we've got these huge swaths of information that we can't digest, and we've got lots of information in every field. And so the best way to make progress is to create silos. To you know, the best way to eat an elephant, they say, is in pieces. Right? I mean, so okay. Um, and so what we've done is we've logically broken up the big domain of human knowledge into specialties and subspecialties and sub-sub-subspecialties uh, to allow progress to continue. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem with that is we're losing the ability to think broadly mm -hmm. and uh, that's become less valued. And so like a pendulum, I think society does swing between appreciating breadth and going to appreciate depth a little more. And so I think we swung towards specialization and depth. I mean, look, think of how college admissions processes used mm -hmm. to work. You know, when I was going to college, uh, you know, it was 25 years plus ago, I was, I thought of myself as relatively well-rounded. I played sports, I wasn't the best. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, did really well academically. I was involved in extracurricular activities. I, I mean, I, I was, what you might deem, or at least I thought of at the time, well-rounded. You know, the, the phrase today for kids to get into college is to be spiky, right? Which is you want to be round, but really, really, really great at something. And I don't know if that's specialization, but it's, you know, you don't want to just play an instrument. You better be first chair youth symphony orchestra. Um, you don't want to just run the mile. 
you yeah. want to run the mile and be state champion. Uh, also at state champion of shop, but at the same time, uh, you know, <laughs> et cetera. And so I think that this specialization logic has sort of diffused throughout society in, in numerous ways, but the original origins, I think, is we're just drowning in information. And so it's logical. Mm -hmm. And that's really what you mean in, uh, by the title of your first chapter, Losing Control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I, in fact, I, I talk about um, someone who, in theory, was the last man to know everything. <laughs> so Tom, <laughs> uh, there was this uh, amazing polymath, uh, true Renaissance man uh, in, in the UK, um, Thomas Young. And so, uh, you know, there was a biography written about him called The Last Man to Know Everything. Uh, Obviously, uh, I think a grandiose exaggeration, but definitely a really broad individual. Um, but even then, back then, he was also a practicing physician, a scientist. And, you know, he, he sort of hid the fact that he was doing some of these really groundbreaking developments and groundbreaking research because he didn't want his patients in his medical practice to think he was too diverse. And, they, they, you know, he, people wanted him to be a doctor focused on the human body. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's always been this closet generalism that that takes place. Um, you know, I think for some reason we feel the need to apologize almost to being broad. Well, how about one more question for me and then uh, we'll probably have to take a soft break and then uh, Jeff will pick up the conversation on the other side. But uh, today, given all the information that we receive uh, as citizens and individuals and consumers, against the backdrop of COVID-19. Do you have any advice for us on how we might sort our way through all of the information that comes at us? Yeah, so, so one of the things that I think is really important in is to, to, to make the jump from all this information to our interaction, our management of, and our relationship with experts. Right. So, you know, I think for, for far too long and definitely more recently, we've bounced like ping pong balls between complete dismissal of expertise and blind deference to expertise. And my suggestion here, you know, the advice I give in this book, and I think it's relevant to your question, is neither is correct. Neither blind deference nor complete dismissal is the right path. What we need yeah. to do, what we need to do is keep experts on tap, but not on top, <laughs> right? And so I say it that way because there is this middle ground, which is we need to figure out what insight we're seeking from who mm -hmm. and explicitly go get that insight for our mosaic. You know, we're putting together this nice, beautiful painting on how to navigate uncertainty, how to navigate mm -hmm. the pandemic. And so we need to tap into appropriate experts to get the appropriate tiles. And then we paint our mosaic with their tiles uh, or yeah. not paint, but put it together, excuse me. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important to understand the sources of information. Are they qualified to be giving us the insight they are? It's also important to understand the boundary conditions, meaning where is their insight not relevant? Might it not apply to me, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so we talk, so they're, oh, everyone should wear a mask. You know, I saw a picture of someone walking up on the beaches in, in southern Maine. There wasn't a human being visible wearing right. right. Okay, I mean, like, I get it. You know, we're trying yeah. to get process, but that person could think for themselves. And if they didn't want to wear a mask while they're on a beach yeah. and there's 
person visible for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of yards, you're probably okay, right? I mean, thinking for yourself contextually, it's because of, you know, the social distancing, et cetera. So I think part of it is yeah. what is on us and how we incorporate the in inputs, because you're right, there are lots of inputs and who you take an input from is also important. We're talking with Vikram Mansharamani, and we're talking with him about his new book called Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. I was thinking about how helpful it is to use, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, Vikram, you know, to use different lenses to think about the same problem, right? To be able to yeah. analyze uh, a problem from different frames. But it, it got me reflecting to, you know, the conversations uh, I have with, you know, many students, conversations I'll, I'll have with alums or sitting executives where they'll often walk in and describe a problem and through a conversation determine that the problem they were attending to is not actually the problem they care about. And, and I wonder, does the generalist's approach also offer uh, you know some guidance, some assistance in terms of how to how to define a problem, how to think about a problem. We've been talking a lot on the solution side here. Sure. So actually, one of the things I would say uh, that I I think could be helpful here, Jeff, is you know the class I've been teaching is framed as systems thinking, mm -hmm. right? So you know when you think of a, a problem as a system rather than as a unique particular node, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. you suddenly reconceptualize the problem. And so the way I teach it to my students is I say, listen, we've got a, a real tough issue, inequality. Okay, if we're going to address inequality, how do we understand what the problem is? What's a cause? What's a symptom? What's, I mean, how do we even make right. sense of this? And so what I say is there's a three-step logic that I keep pounding into these students' heads. I say, listen, begin with lenses, multiple lenses. All right, looking through economics, what are the key factors to think about? Looking through politics, what are the key factors? Looking through sociology, are there power done? Are there ethical and moral implications, et cetera? So we, we sort of come up with a list of topics and sort of nodes, if you will. Uh, then we say, let's connect them. So uh, we say, what are the feedback loops. So lenses, then loops. Um, and so the loops are how do we connect? Okay, inequality of wealth usually ties to income inequality uh, of jobs. Maybe not. Maybe there's an estate program of sort of inheritance logic. But then we can also connect the jobs to education. And education gets funded from housing. And then housing tends to be your parents' uh, education uh, because mm -hmm. that results in income. And so you can quickly figure out a system that says, wait, tax policies and housing policies impact education, which impacts economics and inequality, and et cetera. And so maybe rather than thinking about the solution from a taxing perspective, we maybe need to think about housing to address inequality. I'm just using an example mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Doc. So we go through lenses, then we go through the loops, and then we think about how to intervene. Because ultimately, I'm trying to teach these students how to do something, how to interact with a problem. And there, the key variable to introduce is lags. So it's fine if we're going to suddenly fix the education system, and we're going to, in theory, get it equal you know, resources to those that are disadvantaged. Um, and so we can improve their quality of education and hopefully help them get better jobs and hopefully have better incomes and reduce income inequality. But that investment is not going to bear fruit 
for 15 years, depending upon where you start in the education process. Now, do you have the political will to keep that intervention going for that long? Maybe you'll get feedback. Oh, it's not working. Look, the inequality is getting worse, et cetera. Um, so I think, you know, to answer your question of understanding problems as a generalist, I find the systems thinking logic really helpful, really useful, uh, because you can also then start seeing how something you're doing here can impact you over here and how that change can undermine what you're doing over here. Um, and you can get some loops, right? So, um, you know, one, one fun example that I like talking about um, and is well known is, you know, if you are a one lens person, you turn around and you say, oh my God, there's all these car accidents, people dying in America. We are going to require everyone wear seatbelts. And so you put your seatbelt on. The concept of, and not to get too academic here, but sort of risk homeostasis is that, well, some people have a set budget for risk. And now that I put on a seatbelt, I'm safer so I can drive faster and more riskily. I don't know if riskily is a word. <laughs> We're generalists. We don't have that it kind works. of specialized knowledge. It yeah. works. But the point is people adjust. If they're safer, they get riskier in their behavior. You know, we've seen this. We've got good evidence on that. Um, so anyway, hopefully that's a, that's a useful uh, way to answer your question. But I do think this idea of thinking through multiple lenses, how they connect, i.e. the loops, and then mm -hmm. if you intervene, what delays there are, i.e. the lags. So lenses, loops, and lags. And, and we, uh, that's really helpful, Vikram. And yeah, I love it. A little bit to the workplace here, you know, um, our, our buddy, Mike Yusim, uh, who is off educating today, he, he often says that we, you know, the, as you progress within a career, uh, you find that all of the easy problems get solved before they reach mm -hmm. your step. And, and the problems that you're now facing are, are thorny, thornier and thornier. They involve trade-offs. There aren't clear answers. Um, how, and, and this would, I think, tie directly to the courses that you've been teaching, how would you recommend that organizational leaders develop this kind of system thinking, generalist approach um, in their employees? How do you use the, how do you, how do you introduce it and use these frameworks in a way that, that benefits both the individual and the organization? Yeah, so one of the things I've done a fair amount of, and there's there's a, there's a good story here of a big transaction I was involved as an advisor to in the book, but uh, one of the things I've done is I really encourage both individuals and groups uh, when making a, a tough, thorny problem to you know, do, go through their process of consensus building and try to get to a solution. And once they get there, actually employ a devil's advocate and give them equal resources. So, okay, we're going to go forth in this direction. Now, let's have someone come and pitch us in the right way with having had enough time, energy, resources, et cetera, to tell us why not to do what we think we should be doing, right? And so actually get that disagreement on the table. Uh, likewise, and relatedly, um, you know, when thinking about a course of action, one of the things that I think is, it ties into the systems thinking logic here is to, actually rather than imagine the success of our transaction or our decision, right? All of us are making decisions. We, we have a vision of how it's gonna work out. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna suggest you actually think about how it's gonna fail. 
Think about how what you're doing is going to fail. Make this a mechanical-esque process where you do it every single time. And, you know, again, not to, to degrade into academic speak, but, you know, use perspective hindsight. Um, you know, perspective hindsight being go forth into the future and look backwards to the present. And so, you know, we call this a pre-mortem analysis or it's been written up as a pre-mortem. You know, and so what I find is that when you envision failure in the future, and then you look back and say, what were the possible courses of action that resulted in that failure? What happened? You think as a systems thinker about how, oh, actually this competitor could have done this. The market could have shifted. The world could have had this. Something could have happened that resulted in failure. The mere act of thinking through those possible sources of failure, I think helps mitigate those sources of failure, right? And so, because you become aware of it and you're also taking away the emotion of the present decision by saying, oh, it's in the future that we fail. We didn't fail today. We're, yeah. we're failing in the future. Uh, and so let's paint that story backwards. So I would say, you know, the way to help getting people to think about some of these issues is to A, generate disagreement, you know, all of the, the Lincoln team of rivals logic, um, also to think in terms of actively presenting a devil's advocate or the bear case or the, the con case, whatever you want to call it, the opposite of what you think you're going to do. And lastly, imagining failure on your decision that you choose to do, uh, go forth with and see what could possibly explain that failure, thereby allowing you to focus on those possible courses of action to mitigate the chance of failure. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm going to send this back over to Anne in, in one moment here, but I, I did want to just highlight, I, you said something that I think was really important when you were describing the devil's advocate. It was the dev, devil's advocate with appropriate and equivalent resources. Yes. Yes. As opposed to the devil's advocate, who's just the, you know, designated the room yelling, nah, I don't think so. I don't think we should do that, but not with the same level of, of, no or analysis yeah so i'll give you a, a real quick example and because it's in the book I, I think i'm allowed to talk about it now so i was uh really impressed there there's a, a senior executive uh who i've gotten to know very well his name's greg hayes uh he's currently the chief executive officer for raytheon technologies but uh greg is you know again not to highlight one specific person but he's a he's a real fabulous thinker, a wonderful navigator of uncertainty. Um, and so he actually had me come in and help him and his board um, figure out whether to break up United Technologies. Um, and I was the devil's advocate, right? So they had me present the case why they shouldn't do it. And of course, they went ahead and still did it. But they, uh, I think they did it, or at least I, I hope they did it with more confidence, uh, having thought through how it could go wrong. Um, in a little bit better way. And we, you know, we did a pre-mortem analysis as part of that. And then you know, we did it again when the United Technologies Aerospace business was merged with Raytheon to form Raytheon Technologies, similar logic. Uh, and you know, Greg is, is a great thinker uh, and I've learned a lot from him, but uh, that was definitely a key part of his process was to actually get someone involved to think it through, uh, think through the bear case or why it could go wrong. That's a great example. And let me remind listeners that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Channel 132, Sirius XM. I'm Ann Greenhall here with Jeff Klein. And joining us today on Zoom is Vikram Mancharamani. And he's the author of a new book called Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. 
Well, uh, since Jeff and I have often found that this radio show is highly therapeutic <laughs> for us both, <laughs> I'm going to uh, turn the question, uh, you know, and put it, put the opening question in this way. Uh, enough about me, more about me. <laughs> so, Vikram, I have a question for you. Yeah. Here you are uh, trying to teach and coach systems thinking, get your students to think about lenses, loops, and lags. How has systems thinking influenced your teaching in the classroom? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I generally think one of the things I try to do is I try to bring students in from all walks of campus. So yes, I sort of reside in the engineering school. And you can argue that what I'm trying to do is teach systems thinkers how to think about social problems, right? So sort of take the engineering students that are already in and around where I'm hanging out and try to say, hold on a sec, guys, there's more than the mathematical spreadsheets, there's more than these circuitries, there's more than these, these computer programs, and there's a real world with real problems, and maybe you can be helpful if you understand those. But the other thing I try to do, and I think this is coming from my own systems thinking applied to my own class, is I try to go out and I find, and we have had, I've had students from the divinity school, I've had students from the law school, from the education school, from the business school, from uh, the Kennedy school, all walks of life, as well as undergrads from the English department, from, uh, you know, all the humanities, economics, etc., coming over to join that class. Because then the class itself becomes a manifestation of multiple lenses, right? Applying to these interesting problems or, or tough problems. So I think that's a little bit of how I've tried to do it. And then, of course, every year I get my feedback. <laughs> I get the feedback from the students. <laughs> I incorporate it. I try to make it better and we move on. Uh, although I will say in some cases, um, you know, we've stuck with um, we've stuck with some of the things in the curriculum that maybe students would have said were, were were inappropriate, and I think I'm glad I did. So there's a little pushback that I, as an instructor, have done. So, you know, this movie Contagion, uh, we've used it in talking about pandemics really since again 2016, 17, and it was dismissed by many as oh. That's Hollywood, that's drama. Vikram, give us something real. You know, we can read the academic papers, we can read books written by scientists, et cetera, but eh, Hollywood drama, social order breaking down because of a disease, running, you know, grocery stores running out of stuff. You know, we kept it because I thought it was really useful to see a systemic view of what could happen. This year, students didn't complain about that. <laughs> there was no negative <laughs> back on that one. So, uh, so well, maybe just a follow-up question, and then I'll hand back to uh, Jeff. Uh, Harvard is well known for the use of case method. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar with that term, it's simply the use of a narrative, a story, typically about an organization. And what's uh, wonderful about case method is it gives the setup, the who, what, when, where. It gives the complicating action and then stops and invites the students to essentially write the ending. So I'm wondering if you use cases, narratives in your classroom, and if so, how? Yeah, so the one thing I'd say, Anne, really quickly is, so I don't teach at the business school, so I don't teach the explicit cases, the, the HBS style cases. So that's a, an important distinction. Uh, but with that said, I do use the concept of cases to illustrate the power mm -hmm. of 
these lessons. Um, and you know, one of the things I've done is for each and every case that I present, and we only do six or seven of these a semester. Um, and again, the class being titled Humanity and Its Challenges, these are the large global borderless threats that I talk about, right? And so for almost right. each and every one, we have a movie, we have a, uh, a and a novel. And you know, a novel and a movie are really designed to get students lost in that narrative, to really get them to appreciate the complexity of a story so that they can think in terms of scenarios that are rich and full and thoughtful mm -hmm. so that they can actually get to the point where they understand, possibly viscerally, we hope, uh, the complexities and the challenges of trying to navigate through that uncertainty. And so, you know, we, we do that. Um, and, and students often give a little bit of pushback, at least some of the engineering students, when you give them a novel to read, they're like, wait, what? This isn't true. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's not even based on anything true. It's like complete fake. I was like, yes, it's intended to expand your horizons of the possible, to get you to imagine possible futures, and to think through scenarios that you may not be thinking about. So, you know, uh, yes, we, we do use cases in that broad sense, um, but narratives are a major component of the message uh, that we're trying to convey so that students can, can get that visceral appreciation for complexity. And I'm assuming, just one point, and then off to Jeff, I'm assuming that when you use those videos, those films and novels, that they are not used like parables. In other words, they're not used in order to make a particular point, but rather to invite students to dance around them, walk around them from multiple points of view in order to imagine the various problems that need solving and then to figure out, okay, of all of these problems, here's the one that I think is the most fruitful for exploration because it enables me to connect the dots best that's, from here to here to here to here. That's right, that's right. So I'll give you an example. Uh, and we've two, uh, actually, so a couple of the novels we used this past semester, one was Ghost Fleet by Peter Singer, which was about World War III. It's a fictional story, World War III, US versus China. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's fictional, kind of dances on the edges of feeling real at times, <laughs> yeah. uh, but okay, it's fiction. So, okay, how do we address that? What's the right lens to look through? Is there a way to mitigate that scenario from transpiring? What are the things to think about? Um, you know, another one we've used in the past was Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is a really shocking and jarring thing. And, you know, obviously in that one, I don't want to ruin it for the listeners that haven't read it, but, uh, you know, there's also a movie version of it. So some of my students managed to might figure that out as students do. If there's a movie version of a book, they find yes. it. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it creates a moral and ethical dilemma and sort of creates, oh my goodness, uh, what, a, what a dynamic it creates in students to think through. Is it economics? Is it morality? Is it what are we, what, is it science? Like, what are we focused on here? Uh, and creating a complex issue like that. But then also, you know, we'll watch a movie like The Day After Tomorrow, which was about climate change. And so we think it's about climate change, but the ending scene there is the U.S. sending refugees over the border into Mexico, and the Mexican border puts up a wall. And you're like, wait, you know, getting them really to say, hold on, sometimes you may not envision the way the future plays out, right? And so maybe there's a different form of morality and ethics that we want to think about. 
and they even though they thought it was a movie about climate change it's also a movie about migration it's a movie about ethics and so you're right we don't give them a lesson we give mm -hmm. them a complex scenario and they hopefully take from it interesting insights by the way i do this in my consulting work too i actually tell companies we're going to watch a movie now this is your oh, homework great. we're going to go and yeah we're all going back to the hotel we're going to have dinner and then afterwards you go tonight when you're in your room fire up your netflix watch this movie we're talking about it at breakfast oh that sounds like fun jeff come join me <laughs> awesome um so I, I i'm thinking i'm going to take the conversation in a little bit of a different direction here um uh, i was uh yeah, you know, I was looking at The Economist last night, and their technology quarterly that's out right now is about artificial intelligence and its limits, right? So there were headlines about, you know, it, it's hard to find the right data. It's hard to adopt it. There are all kinds of limitations. Um, when, when you think about the role that artificial intelligence and machine learning can play, how much should we think about artificial intelligence as, uh, as expertise? And, and how much should we think about it as, um, you know, more of a, uh, an analytic technique, but not expertise? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting, Jeff. I mean, part of it is, I think there's a lot of confusion in what we mean. And I think this is what you're hinting at when we say artificial intelligence. So the algorithm, for instance, that evolves to present certain things in your social media feed, is that artificial intelligence? Maybe, I mean, a little bit. Uh, it's, it's choosing what you're seeing and there's not a human deciding. It's based on what's trending, what's liking, what your past prior revealed preferences are, et cetera. Um, so, you know, Possibly there we can talk about a true artificial intelligence, an autonomous car. Okay, I mean, we, this is a, an overused example, but the autonomous car that has intelligent software is driving and it's going to hit either the baby carriage with the mother in front of it or the two older people. It doesn't have a choice. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have to make that choice. Somebody program that in. Somebody, somebody's going to have to, doesn't know what to do, right? Somebody's going to have to have that thinking process and that trade-off weighed. I find that to be, you know, really a, a way, that's a different discussion, really, if you want to go down the path of truly thinking machines, which I don't think we have artificial general intelligence yet to worry about. But on the algorithm side of things, I think it is problematic. Um, and I think we do need to be more mindful of the fact that it's happening. Just think of your social media feeds and the disinformation campaigns that other governments may have possibly imposed on us uh, for our past elections and possibly going forward. Um, you know, we need to be mindful of some of these algorithmic frame setters is the way I like to describe them, right? They're choosing the frame that you're seeing. As long as you are aware that that frame has been set by something, then you can take a step back and say, okay, that's a biased and incomplete view. Let me get another one to supplement. So sort of roundabout answer to your question, because I think it's a complex question with limited yeah. time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was a roundabout question too. Um, yeah. you know, and why do you think, um, I mean, is, is it the desire for certainty? What, why do you think, you know, artificial intelligence and these big, you know, data mining kind of operations. Um, why are they rising in prominence and, and seeming to draw the trust of 
um, if not the decision makers, at, at, at least the general public more and more. Yeah, you know, I think now, Bikram, you have a minute to answer that really tough question. Oh my goodness. <laughs> give me a minute. Give me the toughest question in a minute only. It's, of course. <laughs> 30 seconds to complain about it. And then <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now look, I think I, I think you're right. There is this desire to mitigate. Uh, I don't think eliminates the right word, Jeff, but I think there is this desire to mitigate uncertainty, mitigate the sort of unknown, and insofar as we can get even the slightest edge on doing so, that's something we seek. Um, and if artificial intelligence promises that, I'm not sure it's able to deliver it yet to be determined, but if it promises it, we'll pursue it. So there's my short answer. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. And Vikram, on that note, we're going to thank you so much for joining us today on Leadership in Action. I can speak for Jeff and say we very much enjoyed talking with you about your book, Think for Yourself. Thank you, guys. Really enjoy, enjoyed being with you. So great. And now we usually do a very, very short uh, AAR. So Jeff, I began uh, asking for a one word or a phrase uh, summary of how Vikram was feeling. I'm going to ask you for a word or phrase takeaway from the show? Uh, just multiple lenses. Ooh, that's good. All right. I'm going to say lenses, loops, and lags. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Vikram Mansharamani about his book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.